0: Wednesday, when Devendra Banhart stopped by my place here in Brooklyn uh, just recently in early September, just a couple of days before he released an awesome new album called Ma. I think it's his best album in a minute. Kind of a return to form and a reminder of all of the heart and soul in his music. But I digress. It was a weird Wednesday. Why? Because it was September 11th. Here in New York, specifically, Uh, that just has a weird feel ever since 2001. And on this particular September 11th, we also lost the great, irreplaceable Daniel Johnston. And you'll hear Devendra remark on uh, both of those things, but mostly in this conversation, it was great to get to talk with my dear old friend about stuff we've never gotten to before. You know, you don't always get to ask your friends uh, such nerdy questions as I do in this convo. And, you know, Devendra's humble and... Uh, tried to deflect here and there, but I tried my best to keep us focused on uh, what I was so curious to know about, which is how this incredibly interesting and unique artist ended up sounding the way he does. It turns out some of it was the serendipity of a mistake by a used CD store. So listen for that uh, coming up in this conversation. Also to follow an interview with David Cross about comedy and music and more well, let's get into it. Episode 35 of LSQ.
1: One and a half miniature Diet Coke's in. Yeah. And, um, or actually half a Diet Coke in with the, with the... Frosty. The auxiliary in the, in the, in the sidelines. Ready. Frosting miniature Diet Coke awaiting... Mm-hmm. And you know you're ready you're sure where this is going. You're going to need one. You know you're going to need one. It's preemptive. <laughs> it's planning. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. I have know, an
0: unslakeable thirst for appreciate that
1: info about you, Devendra But you said no. But my
0: toxic, toxic
1: soda. <laughs> I say those two things. I've been yeah. I've been described that exact toxic same soda. way. Uh, but you just said there's an unshadable sliver of light. There is. I mean, that's like a bestseller. I don't know what that book's about. It could be about anything. But it sounds like one of those real, it's like a real, it's such a... Yeah,
0: it's a paperback mystery. It
1: really is. An unshadable sliver of light. A memoir. A novella. <laughs> a cookbook. A cook. yes. The <laughs> new...
0: Cooking with Diet edition, Coke. Edition,
1: Cooking with Diet Coke, by L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> Written by... By L. Ron Skuberd.
0: So I remember the first time I ever met you, and I don't know if you remember this, but it was on Bedford Avenue in Williamsburg. Uh, would have to have been like the early aughts.
1: It would have. It would have, Walking yeah. on down the street in the early aughts. Oh yeah, when we met, um, I had just met Adam Green. Mm. To bring it back to Adam, someone who um, he unites us all. Who is an Isis? Is that what you said? I said he I, unites I, us. He unites oh, us all. Oh, yes, yes. He's, and he's still still an Isis. He still is. And he's the nicest. He loves Isis. <laughs> he also loves Isis. Oh, they're the nicest. Do you see that they're nicest? you think that's ever happened? Oh, you have seen, like... Yeah, they're Jessica, the, she's, she's just the, just the, the nicest. nicest. Yeah. And then later you're like, I can't believe it. I, believe it. <laughs> I think they call the cops. Or should they show up? Maybe they never wanted it to ever happened. Like what? What are the some of the worst things that have ever happened in history because somebody misheard somebody? That's how I get a lot of my lyrics is mishearing. Right. People. I go okay because then I don't have to really give you credit because I misheard you. I would never ever take a line like an unshadable sliver of light and not ask you permission for it. And then, but, but and I've never actually done that. But what I'll do, and I, it recently happened, where someone said something I really liked. So I'm going to put in a song that they said this thing. So so and so said, da, 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 da. you know, so that's I'm you, attribute, them you give them Yeah, you ask permission. Can I put this line? But also, I'm going to give you credit in the song.
0: Wow, that I've... seems like going above and beyond. I well,
1: mean... I, no, I don't think so. I think that's that's the bare minimum, and it's always something that has irked me. And it's judgmental, and I'm judging. I'm going to do it. We're old friends, and I'm it. just going to be a real piece of the real piece of shit that I am. <laughs> And say that when people don't credit, but don't—they don't say it's a cover—and they just play a song, mm-hmm. that's weird. Yeah, I think that's weird. And I—I I was personally—it's an experiential, like I guess a pet peeve. But it's like I've experienced seeing somebody play, and just going that set was fine, but that one song—holy shit—they wrote a song that is one of my favorite songs I've ever heard. This is when I was about like seventeen and then pre-shazam is your pre-shazam. Point. Yeah, pre-shazam this is when the world is black and white <laughs> and i you know a year went by and i'm going this person is like basically one of the best songs i've ever heard and then a year goes by and i discover uh john martin and it was a john martin song of course it's gonna, it's an amazing song called may you never by john martin i'd never and i was like that's the song this person played this whole set So I just always felt really kind of I felt kind of gypped and I felt deceived. I felt really deceived. Um, But did
0: you did you start by performing other people's songs? Did you learn other a lot of other people's songs before you started writing your own songs?
1: Well, the first show, uh, it was a wedding. First show I ever played was a wedding, and I did "Love Me Tender" and "How Great Thou Art." This was what the, the, the 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 I guess it was really the groom and, and the groom. They were friends of yours. They were my roommates, and okay. they were friends. One of them was a um, Elvis impersonator, and the other one was a um, a comedian. And he was um, uh, disabled, and and so his stand up name, his name, was, or stand up his, his showbiz name was <laughs> Sorry, was just... Bob the crippled comic. There was a, this is already we've been talking for like three minutes. You're already in. Number two. Yeah, no, like I'm, I'm getting there fast. But I'm I'm taking it personally.
0: No, don't listen. I've got a fever, and the only <laughs> prescription is more cowbell.
1: Um, yeah, but Bob—that was his stage name, Bob the Cripple Comic—and he would make these jokes about about the their 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 German Shepherd. Um, but yeah, they got married. They got married in on, on in, Dub- in a church that's still there in Debose Triangle in San Francisco, and I played. How Great Thou Art, and um, Love Me Tender. But I had the sheet music, and after that, I try to avoid covers because I don't mind forgetting the lyrics of my own songs, but someone else's, you really want to do it justice, and I'm, like, so nervous about fucking up their lyrics. Right. And it's happened so often that I try to avoid too many covers, but I wish, I would love to just do a bunch of covers and remember them and just call them and, like,
0: but the wedding, you were, I mean, you, you were what, like 17 or 18 yeah, or something? Yeah, yeah. Had you perfor- was there other forms of performance that, that, like, you were attracted to as a younger kid? Did you did you enjoy uh, yeah, putting bo- on botany. a
1: show? Botany. I, I wanted to perform as a, I just wanted to be a botanist. Really? I mean, that would have been my other vocation, was like, I, not even that. I don't even have, I wasn't even that ambitious. I'd be a botanist's assistant. That actually sounds better even to this day. Or can you just, you know, I'm gonna take a specimen here, a sample of this plant. They, you know, this sounds sort of cool. You're out there in, in the mm-hmm. rainforest. Listen, dare like, to dream that here. you're the full botanist. Wow. Yeah, I, I see how it's not the mo- it's not the greatest. But you know, of confidence. at least
0: if you're the deputy, you're less likely to get shot. I sh-
1: well, yeah. I mean, you shot the, the share
0: sh- the botanist, mm-hmm. but I did not shoot the assistant botanist. <laughs> oh man. You know? I'm so sorry. So, yeah. but as it, but as it, so that was the first time but you played. The, what's but the, your the, do you have a
1: go to karaoke song? Go-to karaoke song. I I
0: have lately been doing uh, Pulp's Common People. Oh, fabulous. Well, I can talk through the parts that that I'm shaky on.
1: There's a version. uh, Nick Cave sings a version of that song. Have you heard that version? I haven't. Yeah, Nick Nick does a version of Common People. It's really cool. It's great. Um, Holy shit. I need to find that. I think about Jarvis often and and how I want to... I've never met him. Same. But if I do... I would like to commend him for having rhymed whole earth catalog with agog the line is no one ever went agog over the whole earth catalog it's just a masterpiece of a line and it's hilarious and it's it's, uh, I just want to thank him for that line oh my god Um,
0: yeah I mean so going back though to the wedding yeah to the wedding being talked into playing songs on the guitar at a wedding, clearly you had shown some interest to those friends, uh, in, in singing and strumming before that. I mean, when when did uh holding on to a guitar feel good? Begin to feel good? When did you get your first one? What the fuck did you do with it?
1: <laughs> I think the bad podcast guest police are <laughs> Been notified. Um,
0: Yeah, like, why did you have? Why were you? Why were you the guy they would ask to play a song at their wedding?
1: The indigenous instrument of Venezuela. I grew up in Venezuela, in Caracas, Venezuela, and the indigenous instrument is called the cuatro, which just means a four-string guitar. Exactly. Yes. The four.
2: Intuition.
1: And um, it's a 16 string <laughs> guitar no, no, no. Uh, it's this 4 string <laughs> guitar and the way you tune it is really fun you sing pinton," which I, I, as far as I I can interpret that it means painting banana I don't even understand what that means I mean please explain what that means I'll have to, uh, I'm sure that I'll get a many angry um, well we'll see but I think it means painting banana Anyways, the cuatro is the first instrument that I started playing as a little kid. Everyone kind of... You, know, you come across one. It's this, like, ubiquitous instrument that you play. Uh, but it wasn't until I was a teenager that I just... I, I don't... I just wanted to... I felt really attracted to writing songs it felt like something i could do and i did it once when i was in the shower and i was eight years old and it felt like i could travel i felt like i was traveling like oh wow there's only this like landscape that i can kind of travel make up the song and suddenly you're you're kind of traversing some kind of time and space within yourself and then i'd had this experience when i was like probably 12 and i'm like i want to sing like all these guys around me but doesn't feel right and no one's home my mom goes out and i just put on one of her dresses and started singing as this as this kind of woman and and that felt really good and, and I felt really connected with that side so singing felt good i knew i'd like to sing in a certain place within me that kind of got un- unlocked by mm-hmm. putting on my mom's dress and then writing songs felt Fun and felt good, and I'd written one about plastic surgery and about like Schnauzers getting plastic surgery, and the chorus was like, "Cause we're all gonna die." I remember that, and uh, my family was like horrified, and they said, "Never, ever, ever do that again, please." (laughs) And I thought, "Ooh, I got something out of them. This is fun. I'm getting a real reaction here." And I wasn't that kind of kid, you know. I was really kind of ignored for my entire childhood. Really, I really was. I was very isolated childhood and and that felt like whoa this suddenly I'm like being seen Uh, but I'm sure everybody and I know everybody feels that but I think mine was a particularly isolated one and an instrument felt like the next obvious thing right you feel like you can sing from this particular place you feel like songs can be written somewhere in your imagination and then well I should have something to to accompany that instruments so it makes sense and so I like asked begged, begged my dad to get me a, a guitar he got me an electric guitar like the the most like the the guitar that whoever's in the band in the Lost Boys is playing like that 80s <laughs> cherry red guitar by, like by J.P. Sledgehammer oh my God. like Rocket it's Thunder kind of Ibanez kind something of something like that exactly super rocky guitar and um I didn't you know, it was just totally weird and mysterious to me. I didn't really like it. I had no real relationship with a guitar until until Radiohead made mm-hmm. um okay computer and I was like, "This is the coolest music in the world. Mm-hmm. I need to listen to this I, this is what I know I need to like because I know I like it and right. it's just everything I just but I, I just immediately knew the aesthetics and what they're singing about and the sounds, and this is gonna, this is it for me. And my father was going to London, and so I said, you've got to get me this album called OK Computer, you must get it for me, please, there's, there's used CD stores everywhere, please, 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 the one thing I'm asking you. He goes to London, comes back, there it is, wow, the cover of OK Computer, it's so cool, I was trying to make art kind of like that, using a lot of like white-out, and blurring, and, and kind of uh, making, uh, making things opaque and obscure, and just like, oh, this is all, everything. I opened it up and it was Way to Blue, an introduction to Nick Drake. Oh, so it's wow. like, it's a used CD store. And I remember when I worked at Aaron's Records, I, I probably did that a million times where I'm just like taking the CDs, checking them, and then somehow mixing, I, you know, okay. mixing it up somehow. But you just got them all lined out. You're cleaning, cleaning, and then you're putting it. Had in. you seen
0: the name Nick Drake before mm-hmm. that?
1: Never. Right. Uh, and or I wonder how that happened too. It might have been that also when you're buying it, you're just like, here's somebody d- would drop off like 20 CDs. Right. And, and as they, a buyer, you're like, like okay, great, yeah. great. You actually just turn it, look at is the, is there any scratches? Yeah. And it might happen, might happen like that. I remember at Aaron's, I would dream of just alphabetizing CDs. You know, that, just <laughs> all night. You wake up and like, oh god, I put <laughs> put this one like. Garbage record and the Z's and I put the that one the Breeders record these are the records that were just like ubiqui- flooding the world at that time those were the last days before there was just like you know that was the only way you could get music it was really to the radio or buying, or buying it yeah it's so wild
0: yeah the used
1: CD market like that was good that was a good but that's gonna be the next thing no for so long cassettes you know Goodbye, cassettes. Yeah. CDs. That's the next one. The next record, I'm just doing just CD. CD only, yeah. Just CDs.
0: <laughs> Wait, so... so there's, yeah, there's the way they drink things there, and you listen to that then and, instead.
1: And I just... That completely... I fall in love with playing guitar. I just want to play guitar. I, I, it's, the, it's so beautiful. It blew my mind. It was everything I wanted. The sound. The, the acoustic voice, guitar, yeah. Acoustic, I just wanted to play that instrument. I wanted to be close to the feeling that his, his playing was 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 um, presenting to him, yeah. and uh, it's funny because I don't think anyone will ever be able to play like him.
0: Um, so were you disappointed not to get OK Computer, and how long did it take you to finally get OK Computer? Just
1: got it the other day, it's not <laughs> so bad. Um, um I got it shortly thereafter and I loved it and it was a really important record for, for everyone. For everyone. But it,
0: it but you'll you, but it's it it is of consequence, it turns out, that the error of it being a Nick Drake record turned out to be a positive error.
1: It certainly did. It yeah. certainly did. Thank you, whoever did that in uh, in the UK. Thank you so much. Thank you, Meth. So by the time um, I So and, by the time you're playing For
0: your friend's wedding You had already All of those things Had already happened You already had fallen in love With Nick Drake's music You already had figured out Like oh shit That stuff's hard to play That
1: kind of thing Exactly Yeah And By that time I was already kind of Into People like John Fahey mm-hmm. And um, um, Bert Yanch And these kinds of play, David Graham mm-hmm. And uh, really getting into like like prior to that, I, I I wanted to be Mississippi John Hurt. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm just gonna be a blues man. This is it. It's the blues for me. I mean, yeah, I'm gonna play the blues. And I was obsessed with Blind Willie McTell and Blind Willie Johnson and 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 Sunhouse and um, Mississippi John Hurt in in particular, uh, and Skip James and all these old blues people was like oh lighton hopkins totally obsessed with i just wanted to play the blues um and then somehow that moved into uh finding nick drake and then realizing that they were all into the same kind of blues people that i was into and just reading about their all their biographies all the people that he was playing with and pentangle and Bert yanch like i said david graham uh john martin and it felt really beautiful. I felt like I finally found a community of people that weren't alive, but they all liked the same things I was really enjoying, mm. and I got really obsessed with John Fankie because you know he'd written a book about um, Sun House, and um, he also wrote um, how bluegrass music destroyed my life, and I believe uh, Vampire Vultures, another book that I think Drag City had put put out. Both of those. And um, I just felt such kinship, and I felt so um, connected to this strange, mysterious community, uh, people that are out there kind of going on these treasure hunts for music. But so where did you find that? Like, where were you? Where? So I'm in California at this point. Right. We moved to America uh, when I'm 12 or 13, and we move up this little canyon called Ensignal Canyon, uh, and somehow yeah and so i asked my dad can you get me this record he gets nick drake then i said really fell in love with nick drake oh and then he also he's a he's a cool guy and he's a really big fan of neil young and he would play playing me harvest he's like this is good music and then one day he came home with a record called radio molly by ali farka toure mm. and that also just totally blew my mind yeah like, oh my god this is amazing this is kind of the weird uh this feels like something i'm like have been looking for it just feels close to that and then because it's got this very bluesy thing i'm in love with all these blues p- people and then uh, there's something very kind of folksy about it and and uh, it feels so singular it's like really their own interpretation of the instrument that's very attractive that it's so unique and then my Dad, this is, I guess my dad is a huge hand. I never thought about this, but then he brought home Tropical Truth, which is a compilation that David Byrne had made mm-hmm. for I think walk the early days of walk It's a compilation, I, was, I think this person kind of upside down on the cover, and it had Chico Buarque, Milton Nacimiento, Os Mutantes, Catana, mm-hmm. and particularly Caetano Veloso. That was the big one. That was the one that changed everything really for me. I heard oleo xeno and i was like okay this is everything i've ever wanted i need to make music play guitar everything okay great got thank you and um
0: but before that you had written some songs about the schnauzer and the plastic surgery but it sounds like you're saying it wasn't you weren't really connecting the feeling good doing that to feeling good listening to music and then like the Catana Veloso thing is more like where you're like wait i could what if i'm gonna play songs that's the kind of song I want to play.
1: Yeah, I think it was like, this is what I wanted to do. Oh, this is what I want to do. Um, Did you become obsessed with it once you really did start to do it? Yeah, completely. And really scared. It seemed really scary. It it was kind of like what I imagine knowing that you need to jump off of a cliff kind of feeling. Mm. It seemed totally absurd. I really didn't really know how to play the guitar. And the idea of speaking in public or getting up on stage seemed insane. There's no way I can do that. (laughs) And I didn't think my art was any good. You're not thinking of it in terms of how it will evolve. Not that I think it's any good still, but it wasn't like there was some significant body of work or something to present or any idea of how the music industry works or how this kind of could work as a career I guess it what it did was it made it clear that art school was going to be the thing because right. I'm still in high school at this point right and I hear Gaetano and I go okay this is like this is everything I want to do I have no idea how to do it doesn't seem realistic whatsoever at the same time I'm also painting and I, I really want to paint I'm just obsessed with painting and, and it makes a lot of sense to me to to, to, to paint and so art school was the obvious thing And then I dropped out to make music. I dropped out of art school to make music and start playing a million horrible shows. And eventually a cassette made its way to Michael Girard. Do you really,
0: I mean, you said sort of in passing that, you know, not that you think that what you're doing now is worth anything, but... So, um, I just wanted to look at that a little bit more closely. Well, it's not that I'm like, wow, now my but work ha, how, is good. Right, it's but you, you, you must feel differently
1: in some ways about it now than you did when you, when you were starting. At the time, I, don't, I didn't see art as, as just an ongoing practice. You j- I just see these people that are very good at playing their instrument or at painting mm-hmm. or, at, or, at, or at writing, and you just go, wow, there must be this moment you reach and go, oh, now I'm very good at this thing. Mm-hmm. And, and that kind of makes sense because there is a path, that you you that you take and that you you know you you with discipline you practice and you, you get better and better at the thing, but there's no real I think destination with it, and so maybe I just what I'm I guess what I'm trying to say maybe in a less self-deprecating way is that now I don't have this feeling that there's some oh I've I've understood art. It's really this endless, vast Right, so you're you know, not thing. looking
0: at it like you're, you've failed to get to a destination. You're looking at it like, I know that I'll never get to a specific destination. I'll just keep heading in a direction. You just
1: continue with your practice. And, but at that time, you do look at it like it must be some other, it's just another planet and another type of creature that can do this thing. And so I know this is nuts that I want to do it. It was that alien and distant, especially being a little kid in Venezuela, you know. And when you come, to, and it's not like I come to America and suddenly you're f- friends with, like, a bunch of managers and music industry people or something. You know, I felt just as isolated and that felt just as distant and just as far away and just as impossible. And I couldn't imagine doing it in a mainstream kind of way anyways. You know, I had to discover... I mean, that's why you find something that's considered counterculture underground, and you realize that that's where it's all about. That's what it's about. I mean, I remember trying to convince my parents, like, you don't get it. No one knows my music. That's cool. I'm really happy. It's a good thing. <laughs> they, they, you know, they didn't start to really get it so there was, like, an article, or it was in a magazine or something like that. It's kind of a sad thing to say, of course. But- well, yeah, how
0: are they? How are they? Everything is niche to parents, but... I mean, when did you? How long were you doing it before you started to feel like you had you you were like could
1: see it as a thing on uh, where it was your thing and you you're like I know what this thing is, kind of. I think well, in high school, I had certain friends that were 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 just sharing misery, and we all kind of like that. We were very attracted to each other based on on how much on how much we hated high school, <laughs> and. And that was the initial attraction and they're like, oh, you've got some, you know, you're a little different and I like your vibe, I like your style and, you know, what what music do you listen to? And I think it was just through high school, making a few friends that had a sense of some of what was kind of happening culturally in Los Angeles. And at that time, like, Modest Mouse was just starting to, Mm to... They'd only put out like a 45, right. I think. They had the picture of San Francisco on the cover. Right, And And had right. figure eight on it. And I'd never heard anything like that. Yeah. And they brought this 45 figure eight. Oh, this is pretty cool. This is interesting. And then built a spill. I mean, maybe... Um,
0: well, Beck would have been right starting to pop off around then too. Exactly. The
1: Absolutely. And, um, and then Elliot Smith. Yeah. That was huge. And then Elliot Smith. And we're in high school and we discover this other world this is not mainstream this is way 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 before like elliot was in um uh, Good hunting yeah. which was like whoa what's going on here i think the biggest thing to having my heroes exposed to the world and of course when you're a kid it's horrifying oh, yeah. you don't want anyone to to know what the cool stuff you know about was like the Volkswagen commercial with Nick Drake in it. Mm-hmm. But that was amazing, of course, because it had turned on so many people. It exposed so many people to Nick. It was amazing. But, uh, it and that was like- also was significant, I feel like, because it was
0: one of the first times, along with a Carnival Cruise ad that used Lust for Life um, around the same time. Oh, smart. That, um, yeah, right? People were like, it's about heroin, where the song in the commercial was a significant where it was something that people talked about, that that song was in the commercial. Mm-hmm. That Volkswagen commercial was, like, a major moment like that where it's was like, oh, the right song that's an existing published song that's not, like, a jingle could, you know, could be, it, you know, the cinematic yeah. version of a commercial. And it is, it is yeah, if you were... I'm sure for anyone who fell in love with Nick Drake's music before that commercial existed, it it was, you know painful experience in a way now that feels immature to have cared about it now it's just like man i wish we could go back to a time when that was something to be fucking butthurt about right i mean
1: i know what a simple (laughs) what a simple time time.
0: and also i guess it's just the thing i mean i'm the same you know i'm obviously like uh you know indie like snob or whatever technically
1: but yeah just snob it it's fine too
0: yeah <laughs> just snob cut off the indie part mainstream snob mainstream yeah, yeah. snob <laughs> well you know but the idea that like well for folks who for for volkswagen for folks who it would not have been possible for them to have heard that song until they heard it in that commercial and then they went and did the same thing that you did when you accidentally also got the nick drake when it yeah. accidentally reached you as well you know, same. You get the same. Yours and oh, that, else of course, can have it no. And nowadays. I still, and I still, and I still feel that way about. What do you feel that way about? About, I mean, I still feel that way about the. My favorite music is always still going to be stuff that, like, it would annoy me if it got too popular because, yeah. Um, part of the reason I like it so much is that it's like not built for that or something. -hmm. You know,
1: yeah, it's true. It's true. Maybe it it, it, part of what you like about in the first place is something that's
0: barrier that should be a barrier for other people, but that isn't for you. You know,
1: that's so true. That's something to to to, yeah. It's just there. That that was a really weird thing when I started seeing because at that time you're so self conscious and you're so attached to finally having your own identity that when it gets threatened it can really uh you know throw you for a loop and for me it was when i started seeing jocks at modest mouse concerts like it was the kiss of death to wear cargo shorts, uh, pants cargo yeah. pants are just a mint and like whatever some like these some kind of sport sport related yeah. kind of hat and cargo pants to so me those are the people that would you know, that I hated and hated me in high school. Yeah. And suddenly to see them at a, at Modest Mouse shows, I remember that feeling of, like, I just would have blow. I took it so personally. I was like, how could they do this to me? I'm like, you know, it's absurd. It's insane. Uh, but it's so funny. I hadn't thought about that, how it felt at that time. What an absurd thing. It was silly. But anyways, about the Elliot thing, um, I remember... We're, we're in high school. It's a group of like five or six of us. We love Elliot Smith so much. And we hear that um, when when it says at Largo, John Bryan is playing. John Bryan and guests. Sometimes that means Elliot. And we snuck into Largo on a John at, at a John Bryan show. And, you know, sure enough, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to have a buddy of mine just play a couple of tunes. And it was Elliot. And Elliot's there and he, I saw Elliot Smith play two songs. That was like one of the most beautiful, unbelievable moments of my life. And I, and I, even while I'm watching, I'm like, whoa, I cannot believe, it. of course I couldn't believe it was happening. It was mind-blowing. But then it's like, that's my Jimi Hendrix moment of being able to say, like, I saw Elliot Smith play. And in fact, it's really heartbreaking because it brings me back to a songwriter who passed away today, Daniel Johnston passed away today. Yeah, and that's somebody who anybody who got to meet Daniel Johnston or see play, or, or ha, you know has any of his art, or got to, um, you know, just be around, you know, such a finite amount of people on this planet now, they could say that they've experienced that. Did you ever see him play? I saw him play, I saw him play. I never got to meet him, but um, you know, was a fan since I was a little kid. Yeah really one of the great songwriters truly one of the great songwriters and i think definitely i think celebrated by the people in the know you know but i still think there's a lot of, of people that are, that would love his music so much if they heard it so this is one of the
0: yeah if you have if this is the first time you're hearing that name get in there um, i think yeah.
1: like compared to a lot of artists
0: that um i've met who have an audience as large as your audience is there are you're sort of in a category unto yourself as someone who never seems to have really strived for commercial acceptance you know that you've gotten a much larger degree of commercial acceptance than you've ever seemed to strive for and I don't think striving for commercial acceptance is a bad thing I think like a lot of artists reach a point where they're like wait it's possible to get more people to listen to my songs cool I'll do a Mm -hmm. couple of things I didn't do before but even in the examples of music you heard as a kid that you're talking about it sounds like your path has been sort of free of worrying what else other artists were doing or what might be a template for a career for you? I mean, is that, does that sound like you or, were, you know, was there, ever, has there ever been a moment where you were just, where you were thinking like, I want to have a career at this? No,
1: no, not, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. It just seemed like if I, if I don't have anything to hide behind, mm. like starting out, there wasn't a band, there wasn't even a concept where i could kind of i wasn't trying to put on a show or really right. entertain you're really just trying to like go into this kind of use your vulnerability as a form of strength kind of place and a lot of the beginning of half the set was acapella just because that seemed like okay let's just push out frightened i am of these things this seems really scary let's do that but also laziness like i was too lazy to like find other people to play music with or be like let's put on a good type of maybe multimedia show or something like that which are all wonderful things and are amazing and later i had a band and the whole thing but maybe this feeling that if you're not that it seems exhausting to 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 to, to make up a persona or it seems mm-hmm. ex- it seems exhausting to make up a, a i guess to not just be yourself it's maybe born out of laziness. It's like really focus on just being yourself. But I'm really, I was fortunate that my friends in high school had, you know, unorthodox taste and were interested in things that maybe weren't getting any radio, were definitely not getting any radio. Or at that time, I guess that's about it, radio exposures. So it's kind of this more indie world stuff, which was very valuable at the time. It was very difficult to find. It wasn't a genre on its own. Right, And my father had these world-taste interests. That's why he got the David Byrne compilation and the Ali Farka Touré and Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan. It's kind of world music, music mm. from different parts of the world that I'd never heard. Now, you definitely aren't getting exposed to just walking on the street. So that starts to expand the world to me. And um, I felt like, they're all doing their own very different things. You don't have to, you know, that, it seems like they're doing their thing. My, yeah. And that's all. I'm going to do mine. And I'd read enough biographies that I knew that it's just got to be rough at the beginning. I know there's going to be rejection. I know that it's going to be, you know, door after door slammed in my face because that's like how the, 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 the cliché story goes. But that was good. It prepared me for that, and I went to in college. I went. I took a sound class, and I they, they the big portion of that class was about John Cage, and there's a quote of his which is, "I have nothing to say, and I'm saying it." And of course, he's literally maybe talking about a piece of music where there is silence. Silence. The very infamous piece. Um, is it four forty four, four forty two? I don't know um but it's four minutes and maybe 42 seconds will have to look it up 41 42 yes, seconds I mean. of silence well it's not really and, and that's the point you realize there is no such thing as silence there's yeah. no there's no such a thing even if you're in a you know sensory deprivation chamber or some totally soundproof space you'll you'll hear your own circulatory system so there's no such thing as silence and of course, it's an incredible piece because it hadn't been done before. It's so revolutionary, so highly conceptual, but also it is the realization that there's no thing in silence. And it's a piece that's being created in that moment. It's true improvisation. Somebody sniffing, they're you know sniffling. Somebody shifting in their in their seat. Somebody kind of I guess today getting a phone call. Whatever, all these things are happening in the moment. It's so exciting. It's a totally collaborative piece at the same time, but. The line "I have nothing to say, and I'm saying it" gave me so much freedom because you're so worried when you're starting out as an artist. Like, I need to have something to say. I need to contribute to society. I need to like really. You you, you know you you you're so. You know you're so frightened of of uh, not presenting something original or having your own voice or needing to find your own voice or. What does that even mean? And, you know, there's a million kind of obstacles in the way of finally just letting go and accepting things as they are. And for me, it was this tremendously liberating moment. I have nothing to say, and I'm saying it. Oh, okay. It kind of gave me permission to just do this thing because I enjoy it and because I love it. Um, did you play an instrument? <laughs> I do. I can play a little bit of
0: piano. Uh, do you have I, a piano
1: here? I don't. Anyway, so when did I start... Wendy, when,
0: when did singing start to feel good and, and like something that there's a satisfying
1: it endeavor? Was, it was putting on my mother's dress. No one was home. It was, she was getting her things out. She was going to get ready and she had her dress out on, on her bed. And she left to go to the whatever, part, whatever she went to go to. I don't know. But I was home alone. And um, the dress was on the bed. And it was just impulsive. It was this ins- weird little lightning impulse, and I, I just put it on. And I just kind of comb my hair, though to the side. <laughs> and I was just like... Na, na, na,
2: Ooh.
1: And I was like, oh, whoa. It just felt like suddenly, you know, you've got... You want to draw, and suddenly somebody puts... You know, a brush filled with paint in your hand, and you can just like, wow, suddenly this bridge had been built. Oh, now I can sing. Really kind of unlocked something in me. And, holy shit, this is probably gonna look weird when she gets here. Better take it off, and like it changed. And it felt like my something had been unlocked. Mm. And, um,. From then, I really loved singing. Really loved singing, but I had no interest in um, really sharing that with anyone. It felt like I'd unlocked something inside of me—a type of energy or a space—and and singing couldn't was could could I could sing now from that place. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't that I wanted to sing around people or in front of people, right? Um, and then you know, music and and. Playing an instrument and singing always felt like the platform for words. Like, words is, is really where it's at, and that's where I feel like I'm, when I'm, oh, I have to work, okay, leave me alone, I have to work. It's not me really playing an instrument or, or singing. It's me writing, and, and, and I write every day. Every the, single day. Is the
0: melodic part, the, the the vocal melody part, the singing part, is that,
1: is that what, where it starts? It starts with all with the words, and then it's and then it becomes okay. Now let's find some music to mm. clothe the words in. Right. What's going to best reflect these words? And in the er, right before we met, I w- moved to San Francisco because I went to the San Francisco Art Institute, and I would I was going for interdisciplinary, um, I suppose inter, interdisciplinary course. We're doing sculpture. Some performance, sound, poetry, painting, and drawing, uh, and then new genres, uh, which was very mysterious to me, and it still is. It was it was too much, too. New
0: genres, yeah, new yeah, genres was really its own thing.
1: Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah.
0: That we, lost it, the un, unshade, we lost the un unshadable sliver, sliver of life. Still, some diacog left though.
1: We lost, this is even, that's even better. So we lost, this is the line. Okay. It's your line and it's fabulous. First line. I'd read the rest of this book. <laughs> we lost the unshadable sliver of light, but there's still some that left. That could end the book. That could, that could yeah. end and start.
0: Maybe it'll start and it's a reprise. Oh,
1: that's so good. How many books start and end with the same line? I'm sure a lot, but I can't think of one immediately.
0: Not very well
1: read. I I mean, I guess the Bible. But that's the only book I've ever read, so... Does the
0: Bible start and end with the same lines? I've never read the Bible. Mm. Am I going to lose podcast subscribers because I've never read the Bible? (laughs) I thought this was... Mad subscribers (laughs) dropping off
1: Chicks never read the Bible. Mm. I've never read the Bible either. Mm. But there's lines that I really like, actually. There really are. Man... <laughs> that, that line, I love that. Man. When Jesus was like, dot, man. Dot, 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 <laughs> dot. Son. Son. Man, son. Um, okay, wait wait, wait, wait. What the fuck were we saying?
0: We're talking about singing.
1: Oh, yeah, singing, and you sing Common People, I, I Common sing. Era. Bringing it back to Bringing it back um, to me. So, yeah, I sing now. I make music now, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um, and I have a guitar. I still play the guitar. It's crazy how little I play music with other people, especially since all my friends are musicians. We have many, many common friends. Indeed. Common people. Common people. We have many common people. Um, in. Common. Oh, so around the time that we, before, right before we met, yes. I went to San Francisco, and San Francisco Art Institute, Interdisciplinary Arts, but I'm going home after classes to play guitar, and... At some club, I met someone named Joanna Newsom. And then they're like, person. this is my, my partner, Noah Georgeson. And then, oh, this is my friend, Lucky Remington. And uh, this is my friend, this is my brother, you know, Pete Newsom. And this is, uh, and, and then, hey, we're all friends. You guys are cool. Let's go to this bookstore and walk in this bookstore. And, and, oh, who's the guy working there? Didn't you be, used to be in a band called The Raymond Break in in, in, in North Carolina? Yeah, my name's Andy Kavik. But I'm starting, thinking of starting a band now. I don't know. What do you think, Vetiver? And this all happened around the same, exactly around that's the same time. That's what everyone time. said, by the way, literally. And that, that was. I'm
0: Andy Kavik.
1: That's how he talks. Yeah. He still says it to me. I, I'm like, I know you're in Vetiver. <laughs> Every time. Hi, I'm Andy Kavik. I'm in Vetiver. I don't know Andy. And, uh, and so Noah... Is going to Mills for composition, and uh, Joyen is going to Mills too, I, I believe. And both of them are true musicians who actually know how to write music, know how to read music, know how to compose and record music. And I am like so in awe and so amazed and so uh, excited to make these new friends who, who play music. And I asked Noah if he could lend if he'd lend me some recording equipment. He said, "Sure. Here's this four track." But the condition is, I want to hear what you do. I want to get a copy of the cassette. So it was this challenge. And also, it kind of forbade me from keeping it to myself. Mm. Might have been a good thing. But I always, from the beginning, had this intention of sharing it. And there's thanks to Noah saying that. And then I moved to New York because the cassette gets I play with Flux and Information Sciences and and their drummer at the time was Michael Girard's partner I was obsessed actually with the Angels of Light I kind of went backwards Angels of Light they they put out had just put out How how I Loved You I think a beautiful record with a song called Evangeline which to me was like the best song I'd ever heard and then I kind of went backwards and I really got into Swans Um, and I really lost my shit when I found out that Swans had covered Nick Drake's song. Mm. Swans covered black-eyed dog. And then I just knew. And actually today, it was a real challenge having to pick songs you'd wish you'd written. I chose Joan Armatrading's Willow, yeah. but at the top of the, right, the runner-up was uh, Blind by by Swans, which is a, a perfect song. But anyways, I moved to New York because yet finally somebody writes back. I've written to so many labels, nobody gives a shit. I remember, and some of the labels still active, just rejection letters. No respond, no reply, fine. But finally one does. And you didn't say, I want to put out your record. He just said, hey, thanks for the cassette. And... That was just enough for me to go like, okay, I have to like, I have to really do this. And my one friend had moved to New York, I move, and he's like, I'm this guy, Adam Green, he's in the Moldy Peaches, they're really good, and um, they're really a great band, just check them out. And they're playing with Strokes and Strokes at this time are literally the coolest band that has ever existed. <laughs> so that even that like proximity was like very enticing and amazing. And and I loved them even when the strokes came out. Except I was pissed off too, because I used to wear a tie and, you know, my little like little little jacket and suddenly You know, that's and this is weird kind of ego thing. When you're a kid, yeah,
0: you're like, I have curly hair, whatever, guys. Nick
1: Drake Volkswagen commercial (laughs) thing, where like that's my thing. And then you're walking down the street, and someone's like, Oh, you like the Strokes? I'm like, What? No, I'm I like a little bit underground. I'm like (laughs) trying to do. I'm trying to rip off Lou Reed here. You You know, but anyways, it's it's this kind of like everyone's neighbors in a weird way.
0: So you have a record coming out on Friday, which we would be loath not to at least mention. Yeah, okay. But also, I'm curious because although this won't come out for a few weeks, we are only two days away from you having a full-length album, your 10th studio album, I believe.
1: Sure.
0: Do you you tend to feel excited, a sense of joyful anticipation when you have an album coming out? Are you feeling... The 48 hours till my album comes out vibes or what
1: how do you feel um, Dev? i'm I, I'm a little I'm a little melancholy a little blue not before a record comes out but m- maybe that even does contribute to it because you kind of work so hard on this thing and then and then it's just already then that's it you know in a way so maybe there's that weird kind of feeling it doesn't nothing actually happens when you put the record out right. but I am excited to share it of course but I think the melancholy comes more from. Um, well the fact that Daniel Johnston died today is definitely yeah. breaking my heart and uh, the fact that it's also September 11 it's the anniversary yeah. of September 11 and it's we actually went down to, with Christian who's, um, who I work with as my manager we went down to uh, World Trade Center
0: the Ground Zero, yeah.
1: uh, Ground Zero and, and, and actually they wouldn't let us into the monument because at that moment it's just for family Mm. And that just fucked me up. I just started crying. So thinking about, like, you know, this suffering that, that family members um, are, you know, still have to live with. And thinking about losing uh, your, your, maybe your parents or in the flight or your, your husband or your wife, um, your child. Oh, my God. So much suffering. So painful. So today is a good day to practice uh, tonglen, which is a Tibetan word for sending and receiving. It's kind of the only thing you can do. It's kind of the only empowering thing you can do when, when you're faced with so much suffering, which is trying to breathe in all the confusion, the suffering, the pain, the sorrow, and then breathe out peace and love and wisdom and healing to an individual or group of people or the whole planet to yourself. But it's kind of one of the only empowering kind of things that I can do on a day that's so heavy, so sad. Um, so it's a really, it's a melancholy day. And I'm also sad because I'm a fan of you and your podcast and I fucking blew it. No, come know? on!
0: This has been great! Just, it hasn't. It's yes, been terrible. Stop it, Devendra. Um, it's been wonderful. But you know, it, it, d- this is what it's like for us to hang out. It, it is. is what it's like it kind me. of is. That's this why, is what it's yeah, like yeah. for us hang out. I love it. This is why we're pals. <laughs> <laughs> the worst high five of all time. <laughs> Included. Devendra is just in the early days of a North American tour that has shows through the beginning of December, and then he's traveling around the world on tour next year. Check devendrabanhard.com. I'm Jenny Elliskew. I don't think I said that yet. In episode 35. Of the LSQ podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Up next, a conversation with David Cross about comedy and music and his taste in both. And I was fascinated to learn more about David's creative process as a stand up comic because he is in the early days of a new show that will likely end up becoming a tour and an album in 2020. Let's listen. I was interested. Uh, we were emailing about, me, you know, meeting up to do this, and you're playing a bunch of shows. Playing, I say, as I as I describe a gig, you're playing a bunch of gigs coming up, and I and I asked, you know, might I stop by? And mm-hmm. and you explained that it was still early enough in this round of shows that it's not it's too soon. And I'm just was all immediately fascinated by the thought about of the difference between. A rock show or a you know a musician's gigs and the way a comics gigs work, and the idea of like kind of jamming out you know for as analogy might go jamming out your material for an audience as a way of like coming up with the song that very well may end up on an album that you release at some point
2: sure it's um very different because the just by by. The physics of it. Music doesn't really have a lot of silences, and the silences will tell me, will give me feedback, uh, mm. because I'm just talking. It's uh, you know one guy with a mic, and 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 just to, to explain these uh, these early shows, I don't really have material yet. I have some kind of kernels of ideas, little scraps of paper, ideas I write down. I bring sheets of paper up, and I'll go and print stuff out, and and then things will occur to me either while I'm talking or. Uh, special guest has said something that spur[s] memory or makes me think of something, and I'll riff off that. But uh, and talking to the audience, it's very, very raw. Sounds dangerous. I don't mean raw in that sense. I mean raw as in you just got a big pile of ingredients on the table, but they're not anything yet. Yeah. You know, and uh, so the the first I, I would say seven shows are probably about as loose a comedy show as you might see because anything that i've got worked out i don't really i'm not doing right now i'll bring that out when we get to phase two there's there's basically three phases to this process and also i should say that this is a fairly new process for me i did it the last tour to to accrue material for the last tour and this is it's such a fun thing to do also because there's it's it's so loose and there's so such lowered expectations I don't feel like an obligation to go kill you know it's like um everybody understands what they're getting into and I explain it up front it's also in the kind of advertisement but um it's just if I if I have something kind of that's clicking that works I, I just set it aside this is all about working out new stuff and there are several ideas I have that I'll do it twice maybe three times I go that's not working and then I'll I'll ask the audience questions too like should I keep working on that and then like last night I found a a completely different angle on something that just I thought was a really good thing to explore which is why we put so much stock in Strangers' recommendations like waiters and waitresses and people we don't know who say, oh, get that dish, go, go to this restaurant, eat that. And people we don't know, you know, a friend of a friend, a friend or something. And, and especially like a waiter waitress. And, and I was like, well, I don't know a thing about you. Right. I don't, you know. <laughs> and I'd done it a couple of times and it was okay. It just wasn't really clicking. And, it, um, and I tried different angles, you know. Uh, and then last night I was kind of doing a little Q&A at the end of the show and somebody mentioned being a waiter, and and uh, a woman in the front said, "Oh, I was a waitress." And I used to think, like, "Why are you asking me?" And then I and then I was like, "Wait, that should—that's how I should do it. I should do it from the the other side, not right. me, but as the waiter <laughs> answering that question." And then you know the audience was like, "Yeah, that's a good idea," you know. And and so that's—it's really good for that kind of stuff because yeah. I cannot. And I have tried. I cannot sit down and write jokes to save my life. I'm not a good joke writer. I just my brain doesn't work that way. On stage, stuff occurs to me, and 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 I tape everything and then transcribe it and go. Well, there's a kernel of something. Anyway, that is to say that the these these first several shows are. It's, that's what I'm doing. Right. So that's why I said, don't. There's nothing to right. come to yet. Yeah, but that's like, diehard fans who. are... Yeah. That's that's totally cool, and everybody has a good time, but. I, I personally, for people I know, I'd say, you know what, when I move to Littlefield or the Bell House and these shows start kind of getting a little bit more refined and taking shape, yeah, come down to one of those. You know? Do you
0: find that still, that the kernel of, if you think there's something here, there's this is funny, there's something here that your instinct about that is usually true, that if you can work on it, that there's the things that seem funny to you immediately, like in the way that a catchy song
2: feels catchy immediately to to an artist i would say uh almost 100 percent of the time it's true but only 50 percent of the time or less am i able to make it work mm-hmm. so i i think there's some funny ideas i've had that i just haven't figured out how to work that i could go give to a number of other comics and like you know Patton Oswalt or Sarah Silverman can make this work or, you know, P, you know, Paula Tompkins or whoever. Right. You know, they can make this work. I just ha- could not figure it out. Yeah. And, and that's one of the great things about hanging with other comics is sometimes somebody will have, you're so inside your own head and somebody will have a, uh, the clearest idea that's just, it, sometimes it is literally changing the word. It's changing a the tense of something. It's changing, it's inverting yeah. something. It's just, it's just something that simple. Uh, 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 not all the time, but occasionally somebody says, "Why don't you try to say this instead of that?" And it just all of a sudden it's killing. And that's that's pretty cool, you know.
0: So was was stand up what you always you know when you were a kid first discovering your love for comedy was it, was picturing yourself on stage doing stand up kind of the form it took.
2: Yeah, like yes. Uh I I don't think I it was a little less uh tangible than it was easier to vaguely think of myself like I'm going to direct films one day. And mm-hmm. that's just sort of I don't know what that looks like, so you just sort of think about it when you're right. 10 years old, 11 years old, 12, 13 and uh stand up is uh, stand up was a lot different, you know, when I was a kid. Uh but I was way into comedy and I was way into sketch oddly enough between like Python and uh, Saturday Night Live and then when I was a little older SCTV. but i I mean i the first gig I did was I was uh seventeen, so
0: that's young to be be like, yeah I'm gonna try stand up now
2: <laughs> yeah and I, and uh, to be fair, it was right before my eighteenth birthday, but I was still Technically, in yeah. 17. So uh, where, where, where was that stage? The Punchline in Sandy Springs, Georgia, a, a, a suburb of Atlanta. Now it's all one big thing, but in in Atlanta where I grew up. And uh, and I would go do open mic nights, and I did... Uh, then there was a place called The Comedy Spot on Roswell Road. And... Did you like it, though, immediately? Or feel, feel, feel Well, I had natural? the craziest experience that I would not recommend to anybody. It, it, this is... And I'm going to describe it to you, and I'm not exaggerating. I'm not being hyperbolic. I'll tell you exactly how the evening went. But it was – so my first time, and uh, I had one or two friends there that were friends who, you know, we all liked comedy in in various forms. And I can't remember the guy's name, but there was a guy from New York City who was – performing that week, and they, they'd make some extra money by hanging out on Mondays and Tuesdays. The week is usually um, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you know, two shows, you know, two shows Friday, maybe three shows Saturday, one show Sunday, and then you have the open mic nights. And uh, they, you know, would stick around and make an extra of whatever, 150 bucks, and host. And this guy uh, is a Catch Rising Star guy up here, and... I went up, and my it took me years to find my voice, and and I was uh, heavily, to a fault, influenced by Andy Kaufman, Steve Martin, and kind of like absurdist stuff. And I went up with whatever my five minutes were, and I am killing. And it's, I mean, I am, these are the first time, it's the first time I've ever told my jokes in a room full of strangers, spotlight, brick wall behind me, and I'm, and it's, it's comical, I'm killing, and the little red light comes on, and I said, oh, uh, well, the red light's on, I gotta go, and people literally, like, no, no, and, and, like, stay, you know, whatever they were yelling out, and then I left, I had no more joke, I didn't, you know, I gotta go, and I left, and, uh, the comic, um, I wish I could remember his name. I can describe him physically. It was like, well, that was David Cross. That was uh, um, you know, something to the yeah. fact that that kid's going somewhere. That guy's that he was. That was great. Whatever. And I walked off that stage thinking, I'm great. I'm a great comic. Oh my god. I mean, I'm telling you, it was comic. If you put it in a movie, you right. go like, this is triumphant. Too much. Triumphant. This is too much. Yeah. And I and I and. Uh, I thought it was great, and I, you know, signed up for more spots. And I would say the next twenty-five times I went on stage, I ate it, <laughs> as I should have. <laughs> there was no reason. There's no rhyme or reason why I did so. I cannot tell you what the weird kismet was, but uh, and and of course I was perplexed and same thrown. Same material. Same material. Same exact material. <laughs> say, said the same way and saying things like, "Oh, I killed last week." You know, and the—that's the point where you know the feedback happens in the movies, where the guy's bombing. Oh my
0: god! How do you? Had you been rehearsing those five minutes a lot before that first?
2: I don't remember rehearsing. I don't know. Maybe I did in my room, but I don't.
0: And then I mean, I'm guessing that, a la playing music live, that you know, I know when I go see a young artist early days and you're just like okay they need a hundred more shows but you know but in a hundred shows that's going to be really good or whatever you know
2: sometimes it's about attitude too you can just attitude pokes through and you you, and you can see that as a positive you know
0: yeah you can see you can see the magical the the magical sparkle I mean, it doesn't surprise me that much that the first show, though there's so much energy driving toward that first set, there's something just truly just like I don't know anybody that's about.
2: had that experience though. It was <laughs> it was bizarre. It was so bizarre, and just and really threw me. And I and you know after that, I was like, what's wrong with me? What did I do? What am I doing differently? And there's no answer to it. You know, it's yeah. just you know, and then your confidence just drains. You know,
0: right? But, but now I'm guessing you don't. If, if, uh, a less good show doesn't throw you for a loop as much. You're just like, fuck it. It's a show.
2: Um, I mean, I don't like it. It, it, right. I wouldn't say that it throws me. Uh, I'm at the point now where I just go, uh, I, I do my best and I, and I haven't like tanked a show in you know, decades and decades. I've never tried to purposely, I mean, yeah. when I was much younger, maybe, but, um, I try to deliver there are people that, uh, I I have this thing, I know it's corny, but when I'm having that bad show and of course, bad is relative bad to me, might not be bad to somebody else, but it's bad to me. I will always think or always be aware of that up in that balcony, I can't see them, but there's some kid, there's like a, 17, 18 year old boy or girl that's up there that loves stand up that is thrilled that stand up is coming to their smaller town. And they're so excited. And they've saved up their money. And they, you know, and this is their first comedy show. And I kind of do it for them that imagined person in the back of the theater in the balcony, you know, who uh, that was me, you know, that was me, too. Um, so I always try to kind of deliver with that idea in mind and then have fun you know try to still have fun you know they're not all going to be like killer killer shows
0: you mentioned some of the comics who influenced you early on and i wonder if uh some of your early favorite music if sort of your favorite comics and your favorite music artists seem cut from the same cloth to you is there are there similarities between your all-time favorite comics and your all-time favorite i yeah i
2: suppose so there's kind of a uh you know, a, a punky ethos, I think, to my, my favorite comics growing up were, um, as far as like stand up, was uh, Andy Kaufman, Steve Martin, Stephen Wright, Wendy Bruce, Jonathan Winters, Richard Pryor. I'm um, going off of whose albums I had, Franklin Ajay, Cheech and Chong, and of course, Python. I had all their albums. But like, uh, and you know, some of my, when I was really starting to be educated with music, and when that kind of punk new wave stuff was coming starting to come out when i was coming of age and you know x and elvis costello and the clash and the jam and uh you know bow wow wow and and, uh, you know all the stuff from that era uh, gang of four and and um and then as as i got a little older and then the kind of REM and replacements right. and all that kind of stuff. So I think there's a shared sensibility and and uh, a lot of a lot of my favorite comics were my peers after a while and uh, I was very lucky and and uh, uh, came up in comedy in a in a very creative, uh, extremely creative environment and era and when comedy was changing too, and and we were all subtly adding our changes to it to make a different kind of stand up um and and uh, you know I was, I was heavily influenced by my peers you know and, and just some great 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 comic minds you know and so
0: what what was the first
2: music that really
0: kind of told you that you were you know what was the what was the first music you became obsessed with in the a who. way that felt different the from who. other kids it was right the who. yeah yeah
2: for sure like I can answer that easily <laughs> uh,
0: you had uh, a couple of rec a couple of their records
2: yeah my the first I got I got Pinball Wizard as a single and I think that was a gift or I traded for it or something um, and I and I remember my mom and dad. And this is when my dad was still around since so I would have been about, I want to say nine. And we were in Roswell and they had gone to the theater and they came back and they told me, oh, there's this, uh, we saw a trailer for a movie that is, you're going to love. And I don't remember myself or anything I was interested in enough at the time to, to, to understand why they made that connection, but obviously they did. Um, it was a trailer for Tommy. And they 're like, "You are going to love this uh, it 's got that song you like or whatever <laughs> and um, uh, and i don 't know when i don 't know if my mom took me to see it when it came out or uh, or how I ended up seeing it, but I mean, it blew me away. you know it was like the trippiest, coolest thing and and I loved the who for that stuff initially. then, as I got older, um, oh, I remember buying um Saving up my money and buying the Who by Numbers when that came out. So what was that? Ooh. Seventy-five, something yeah. like that. So um, I remember that
0: weird era of the Who, but I love that record. Not, yeah, not yeah. A, not,
2: not the <laughs> best, but uh, but I was like deeply like, and I was I must have been nine, ten, and you're like, this is my band. Eleven years old. I don't know what it was, but I'm like, this is my band, and and I got in trouble for a spray painting spray painting the Who number one and putting it in the cement and wet cement and stuff like that, and. Uh, and then when I got older and you know the their early stuff, which was very kind of snotty and punky, I loved, and uh, especially when I was getting older and, and meeting you know, people who were also into music who were like, they liked prog rock and these guys liked the Beatles. I'm like, This song kicks that song's you know, that song's <laughs> bullshit. And listen to how awesome, you know, it was a lot about attitude too. And then um and then when i got into quadrophenia that was it i was done and that was like the greatest thing and this is my life and oh my god and i was also i should uh uh, part of this is because i was a big anglophile and um uh my dad is uh from england from leeds and the whole family off the boat and uh so I had that, and I was in Roswell, which I knew wasn't right. I'm not supposed to be in Roswell, Georgia. I knew that. Hmm. I'm supposed to be in New York. I'm supposed to be in London. You know, uh, riding a
0: moped. <laughs>
2: yeah, riding a, a, a GS scooter with my hair cut neat, and uh, um, that was also part of the part of the allure. And then, and then when the jam came in, it was like, oh well, right. man, you know. But but early on, it was the Who, yeah. I mean, and then
0: did you start would you go see shows as a as a in high school or college? they were they uh, they
2: were already
0: I mean I am mean, not, not the f- who, I just mean generally. When did did you start oh, were yeah, you yeah. into going to see,
2: you know, punk shows in your you Yeah, know. there was a club called six eighty eight on uh six eighty eight Spring Street in downtown. Kind of mid it's like midtown, but uh probably the single most important club thing space. Uh there was a place called the Bistro that I used to go to as well. It was down the street um but and they were more like kind of there was that whole college art pop type of you know early early REM and mm-hmm. B-52s and Pylon I saw a lot of Pylon shows and nice. the now Explosion and there was like kind of melding of the the kind of gay music scene and uh and then the kind of art college pop stuff and and new wavy things and and uh stuff that really didn't have a, an exact definition but but had its fingers in a lot of different little things and um there's a place called the nightery that's the first time I ever got paid to do stand up was opening up for some punk band thing but it was like this under it was like this gay club but it was it wasn't gay it was like i i i well, it was gay but it wasn't like it wasn't like a a dance club it was just right. a it was where like RuPaul played and uh um and a good friend of mine in high school was in a band called it was RuPaul and the and the U Hauls with Wee, featuring Wee Wee Paul and that and that was his band. And then a lot of it was it just every kind of thing melded into yeah, the it next Yeah, sounds very like
0: interdisciplinary or something.
2: And it was fun. It was a fun, cool time. We and we used to do stuff on cable access, uh and this won't mean anything to anybody under forty, but cable access was kind of the YouTube of, of back then, you would get you know there would be two, three, four channels, and you could just go and put on a show. <laughs> you yeah. could get it would be on TV, and yeah. uh, um, and there were some crazy, weird, weirdo shows, and um, and my friends Robert Warren and Todd Butler, who's who's now passed, and those all guys in different bands um, would do these. Show and or be part of these shows on uh, these weird cable access shows and, and it was all people from the music scene and and then there was uh, you know blended into comedy as well and um, and I had a fake ID back when it was pretty easy to fake an ID where uh, my sister's friend had a mini camera I want to say and then you would take a picture of the ID and you could just like alter it. And then laminate that, and it was good enough to pass at like six eighty eight because I was going there, I was underage, and I performed at six eighty too, twice, uh, opened up for bands, and uh, that was a thrill.
0: Yeah, and I mean, at that age, though, did it feel to you as part of your identity, kind of that it was important to have the music world stuff as that you were that you had your feet one hundred percent. Yeah,
2: I mean, it was more important than comedy was. Comedy it was still sort of you know swimming around floundering I wasn't really a comedian I wanted to do it I did did stand up you know I did open mic nights and I'd write some sketch things out um but it wasn't like I could I I was never I was not at the point where I'm like I'm a stand-up I do stand-up you know I was trying to but a lot of my friends were in bands and uh I mean almost all of them really and uh, um, um, and that's just what you did.
0: Yeah. You know? And,
2: and it was but great. you didn't You didn't have an urge to play music yourself, particularly. I just i just don't have that. Same. I mean... I, I don't have it. I, I think i if I was adept at that, or not adept, but if I did have that skill, yeah. I think I'd be pretty good at it. But I just, I tried learning the banjo, and it was really difficult. I tried drums and guitar, and I just didn't have it so you're so you're going to be doing this this current show in, in the phases that you've described
0: for the coming months
2: should i'll be doing it if nothing comes up uh, it's it's uh, another great thing about doing this stuff is I can always just stop uh, I mean I'll honor the commit my commitment to, to dates that I booked but um, unless I have to go out of town or you know out of the country to work but right. um, But barring that, I can just keep working on material and just, you know, keep pocketing bits and figuring it out. And then, you know, if nothing happens, then uh, I just keep doing it and I get a new hour, hour and a half together and I eventually go on a tour. If something does pop up, I'm like, oh, you know, you need to be in Toronto for the winter and spring. I'm like, okay, and I've got all that stuff ready to go and I'll just pick up where I left off. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's just the best thing. And I also, I, again, I know it's corny, but I love doing stand up. I love it. I love, um, I love getting up on stage and, and all of these forms, uh, and doing it. It's a creative outlet. It makes it, it helps every part of me and my personal life and professional life and, and mentally it's a, it's healthy and, uh, and I, I am lucky enough to, you know, live in a place where I can just—I literally just bike to these gigs. I, you know, until the weather gets too fucked up, I just bike to Union Hall, or bike to Littlefield, or bike to Bell House. That's
0: awesome. Yeah,
2: and I get home, and you know, my my wife will get up with the, uh, the kid in the morning if I've had a late night, and you know, and then if not, I get up with her, and uh, uh, it's 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 just a it's kind of a dream life, you know. And then if I do have to stop? Then I'm stopping for ostensibly a good reason, right? You know, I, I, I just I'll, I'll honor the you know the, the shows that I can honor, and then I uh, hopefully I'm off doing a cool part or directing something or something like that. So
0: yeah, but um, it's exciting to know that for for people who might uh, go to one of these upcoming shows, that they are along for part of a creative process, that they get to see a creative process happening or be genuinely a part of that process, you know of the final joke. Yeah. Working and, their and, way and, working and- their way toward the final joke. So unless something even more exciting happens in the coming months. 2020 is likely that we'll get a possibility of a new David Cross tour and album. Uh, yeah. In the short term, people will be hearing this long before then and are encouraged if they visit New York City oh, to attend come one down. of Go. these yeah, in progress.
2: Or check out my website. It'll have all the info on it. And The, as just the first 10 to, I don't know, Twelve shows will be very rough at Union Hall where I'm just accruing
0: the bootleg some... sessions as they're known. Bootleg
2: <laughs> sessions. Uh, <laughs> no recording please. And then then you start going, All right, I think here's all my material. I think it you know, I think this would be a chunk and then you do that chunk and then you have a special guest and I think this chunk works. And maybe you know, and you've have maybe five or six of those shows and you go, No, nope, I was wrong. I shouldn't do the thing about cooking next to the thing about the dog dying uh you know that was a bad idea i and then this will segue into this and you know it's fun it's cool but i'm at the very beginning stages
0: thank you so much david for visiting me for this Uh, podcast interview
2: sure Uh, my pleasure to beautiful day to ride my bike over to greenpoint
0: All right, that's it for episode 35 of LSQ. Massive thanks again to Devendra Banhart and David Cross for their time and candor and enthusiasm. And in the next episode, an interview with Caroline Polachek, formerly of Chairlift. She has a solo album uh, that is about to come out. Maybe by the time you're hearing this, it will have just come out. But regardless, I had an awesome chat with her that I'll be sharing with you in the next couple of weeks. And subscribe if you haven't done that yet. Also, remember, you can reach me with feedback and questions on Twitter at JennyLSQ. Thanks again for listening.